Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios. 
all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of September, St. Evans is supporting the Lower East Side Girls Club, which connects young women and gender expansive youth of color throughout New York City to healthy and successful futures through free, innovative, year-round programming and mentoring. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st. Dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love 
and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that really, really tries to stomp out all the greenwashing. It's like a high stakes game of whack-a-mole and I'm still whacking away over here. (laughs) I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 98. It's still September, which means that we're continuing to focus on the theme of nothing is disposable. And this is part two of three parts about the Aura Foundation and its work in Ghana, where an endless flow of discarded fast fashion from the global north is having terrible environmental and economic repercussions for the people of Ghana. And really, for all of us around the world. I mean, we ultimately breathe the same air and use the same water. The ocean and the atmosphere connect us all. It's not somebody else's problem. So while this waste colonialism may allow us to continue the delusion that overproduction and overconsumption have no impact on us, that out of sight and out of mind is just fine, eventually this waste is going to become everyone's problem. And I hope this is the moment where we all begin to take it seriously. If you did not listen to the last episode, please go listen to that first. It's going to make a lot more sense to you. Go do it now. We'll wait. We'll be here when you come back. Okay, you're back. Well, this week, the CBS Morning Show did a segment on Contamanto. That's the secondhand clothing market in Accra. We talked about it in the last episode. We're going to talk about it more today. This feels like such a major moment. Like, finally, more and more people are hearing the truth about where all of our barely worn, barely wearable clothing is ending up. And I'm going to share a link to the segment in the show notes because I think it's valuable for you to see the market, the beaches, the ocean, the people who are trying their hardest to make a living off of the 15 million secondhand garments that arrive in Ghana each week. I am just going to jump in here, too, and say that I've been watching the LuLaRoe documentary on Amazon Prime. It's called Lula Rich. It's got four parts. I am not ashamed to admit that Dustin and I watched them all in one night. It's captivating. I think there needs to be another season of it. I have so many more things I wish they would cover. But the thing that I could not stop thinking about as I was watching this is how many LuLaRoe leggings are in Ghana right now and in all the other countries around the world where we're sending our secondhand clothing. Because I'll tell you this, the thrift stores here in central Pennsylvania where I live have so much LuLaRoe. 
usually a few racks that are signed that are exclusively LuLaRoe product. I see it at yard sales, not even opened, still wrapped in plastic. I see it everywhere I go, flea markets, you name it. LuLaRoe itself, I don't even want to think about the mountains of future garbage that company created. That's not a that's not a sick burn on the clothing or the aesthetic, just that here was a company that intentionally overproduced with the goal of overconsumption with the final goal of maximizing profit. Like right there is just one case study that is repeated many, many, many times around the world every year. Okay, that's my lecture about LuLaRoe. Uh, go check out LuLaRich. Uh, I want to hear how, what all of you think about it. I'm thinking about a way in which we can all hang out together and talk about it. Um, that might be a Zoom. It might be this new app called Stereo that lets you do like a live talk show that everybody can participate in. We could try Clubhouse. I would love to hear from all of you. It would be so fun to just gab about Lula Rich. Okay, well, the main event in today's episode is the second half of my conversation with Liz Ricketts, the director of the Orr Foundation. Once again, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, please go do it. Today, we're going to talk about what we as consumers, as good people who care about the planet and its people, what we can do to help. We'll also continue to unpack the impact our secondhand clothing is having on the people of Ghana as we hopefully, I hope, 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 shatter the delusion of clothing recycling as it exists today. Before we jump back into that conversation, I have so much information for you. <laughs> like pages and pages of research I have written and typed up and I'm gonna tell you all about it. I want us to talk about clothing recycling and circularity. We talk about greenwashing a lot around here. And if you've been listening long enough, you've memorized the list of terms that brands are using in bad faith to sell us more stuff. We've got sustainable, conscious, transparency, eco-friendly, green, organic, natural, we know now that while these words make us feel good when we hear and see them attached to something we're about to buy, in most cases, they actually mean nothing because there are no legal parameters that a brand must meet in order to use these words. Organic is kind of an exception, but a certified organic fabric can be dyed with petroleum-based color and then sewn into a garment with polyester thread completely negating a lot of the positive attributes of organic fabric. But we're learning together to trust these claims a lot less while asking a lot more questions. And the thing is, retailers and brands know that. They know that we're wising up. And so they have to push the envelope. They have to introduce new words that haven't been completely destroyed yet. And right now that means adding clothing recycling or recycled fabric and circularity to their little list of greenwashing words. Let's start with clothing recycling. We've talked about that here on the show in the past 
many times. I remember specifically, this is something that has stuck in my head for months now, when Jade of Fashion Without Trashin described clothing recycling companies as more like logistics companies, basically sorting and bailing clothing for different destinations and then, you know, moving this stuff all around. Whether it's going to a place where it'll all be shredded or another place where it's going to be sold off to resellers in our own country or shipped overseas. We all have this vision of clothing recycling, and it's, it's not wrong to have it, but we're going to dispel it once and for all right now. We've, we envision something like this. Maybe I'm giving you the Disney-fied version of it all. I grew up watching a lot of cartoons, too. But we imagine that a dump truck pulls up to a factory. It's full of all of our unwanted clothing. It dumps all that clothing into one end and there are all kinds of conveyor belts and pistons and machines and steam coming out of the roof and action just so much action at the end plop out comes a roll of fabric or a brand new pair of jeans or something we think that's what clothing recycling is H&M's loop machine only reinforces this delusion. I mean, go watch a video, a shirt goes in, all kinds of stuff happens, and then a shirt comes out. But as a reminder, the loop machine, there's only one, to be fair, can only recycle four garments per day. That means it would take that machine almost four million days to recycle the clothing that arrives in Accra in one week, not the other 51 weeks of clothing in that year, not the 85% of clothing that we're sending to the landfill in the first place. I mean, the loop machine is all of our delusions of clothing recycling in real life. Until a few years ago, I really thought that clothing recycling was happening. I would see you know, marketing stories full of recycled clothing, right? And and in my mind, it meant that clothes were being disassembled, unraveled into thread, and then rewoven or knit into new fabric. Or maybe it was all getting mashed up and then respun. I don't know. I thought it was happening. And it, it sounds pretty easy, right? Well, spoiler, it's really hard to recycle clothing. <laughs> like, really, really hard. A few years ago, I started working with one of my clients on a 100% fiber-to-fiber recycled collection, meaning fully recycled fabric, no additional new materials. That was our goal. We were going to make t-shirts and pants and jackets and anything we could. Um, This company already really focused on upcycling, and they did a lot of really cool stuff, actually making a lot of really nice things out of other people's garbage. But they wanted to take it to the next level. We saw some samples of fabric that were made of recycled fibers and they looked horrible. The color was weird. It was all weird and orangey brown, no matter what color it was supposed to be. There was this orangey brown undertone. It was really weird. The texture was terrible. It was super expensive. You wouldn't want it to touch your body. And that was because the technology was moving so slowly. None of the big brands out there were willing to invest the money required to fund this innovation. And there were a few companies at that point that were on the verge of sort of cracking the code of fiber-to-fiber recycling, but they needed a lot more money to keep going. And while there were plenty of small brands in the sustainability space that wanted this technology to become a reality, including my client at that time, 
they weren't the kind of companies that had money to fund it. Because spoiler, right now, very little money in true sustainability. Like the people who are making money off sustainability right now are not truly engaging in real sustainability. Because yes, there is profit to be made in those practices, but not right now. It's because no one spent the money to develop the technology to make it as profitable as it could be. And the thing is, the only companies that had money to fund this kind of innovation would be the big clothing companies. And they literally just did not care. Unless this recycled fabric was going to be as cheap as the brand new fabrics they were churning out every day, they weren't interested. We've talked about this before, and I'll just say it again. When brands are selling us clothing for so cheap, they have to cut every single corner to eke out every last penny. That means squeezing factories on pricing, using the cheapest fabrics and trims, and skipping through the fit process, and so much more. Fast fashion is a business model that has said, we would rather make a few pennies off of millions of garments than a few dollars off of thousands of garments. And in that pennies game, investing in textile recycling technology is just not an option because it means even less pennies, at least right now. That failure to create a fully recycled clothing line was the moment I began my own journey of learning the truth about clothing recycling, about unpacking my own delusions about what was happening with my unwanted clothing. And it's been, understatement, a journey, you know? The recycled fabrics that brands have been selling us that I was seeing and assumed were made of recycled clothing are made of recycled plastic bottles, not recycled clothing. We talked about that back in January with Jess of Fab Scrap, and I just want to say it again because I still think there's a lot of confusion out there. And even those fabrics that are made of recycled bottles, they require some virgin fibers, meaning brand new fibers, to lend some level of durability at a nice, soft hand feel. And when clothes are made out of recycled bottles, that's the end of the line for those materials. There is no more recycling in the future. And in most cases, these fabrics aren't long lasting because the thing about synthetics, the thing about plastics is that even one recycling really degrades the fibers. It's just never as good as the first pass of plastic, which, you know, that shouldn't say to you, oh, we should make more new plastic. What it really means is that maybe we shouldn't use plastic. Like maybe plastic's just not that great, right? The thing is, True clothing recycling is hampered by more than just the cost of developing the technology, although that's a big part of it. For one, most clothing in 2021 is a blend of cotton, polyester, or other fibers. And blends are difficult, if not impossible, to recycle. And there's an almost infinite variety of blends being used by brands because real talk, they're less concerned with the future of a garment because, let's be honest, they're completely unconcerned with the future of a garment. And they're more concerned with the cost and the hand feel of a fabric. Will a customer like it? Does it feel, this is my favorite, I've used this phrase so many times in my career, does it feel, quote, more expensive than it really is? That's what matters to buyers and designers, not whether or not the fibers can be easily recycled. 
Furthermore, clothes must be completely disassembled in order to be recycled. And even if you've taken apart a garment, I bet you haven't taken it apart this far because this means removing the buttons, the zippers, the tags, any embroidery, any any embellishment, lining, pockets, everything. All of the things that make clothes clothes and not just a sheet of fabric. Even the thread holding it together must be pulled out because in most cases, it's made of a completely different fiber than the rest of the garment. This is so time-consuming and such difficult work. And that makes it expensive in the eyes of an industry that wants to squeeze out every penny of profit. Completely disassembling a garment to all of its individual components is so time-consuming that it's hard for me to imagine how any company engaging in that could come close. I mean, even just remotely close to processing the massive volume of garments we're discarding every day. And I think that's an important thing to call out here. And it's a fact that can be difficult or uncomfortable for us to accept. Yes, this technology needs to be developed. That's not our responsibility as consumers. And yes, brands need to be using fabrics and trims that are more easily recycled. And getting them to do that will involve government policy because they definitely aren't going to make that decision on their own. But, and this is all a big, all caps, B-U-T, but recycling is not a solution that gives us a blank check to buy tons of clothes, wear them a few times, and then send them off to the recycling plant. Because recycling requires a lot of energy, a lot of transport of clothes here and there, a lot of equipment and washing, bleaching, redying, water. Think of all the electricity and gas used to make this happen. Recycling is not a solution on its own. We must, this is the part no one likes to hear, we must change our habits with clothing. We must buy less, We must make things last longer by caring for them, mending them, all of that. We must normalize repeating outfits. We need to break up with that mega, mega chuggy idea of a new outfit for every Instagram post and a suitcase full of clothes for every vacation. It means no more one-off shirts for bachelorette parties or trips to Disneyland. Everyone will have to change their ways. But that's also where EPR comes into play. EPR, or Extended Producer Responsibility. Right now, brands are not responsible for where a product ends up when it breaks or goes out of trend. This has allowed planned obsolescence to flourish. It's one of my favorite terms to throw out in conversation. So let's just define it again. Planned obsolescence is the practice of intentionally designing products with a short lifespan, whether that shortened lifespan is due to low quality or trendiness, it's designed that way in order to motivate the customer to continue to purchase new products. Once again, fast fashion is built on this model of making a few pennies off of millions of garments. The volume is key to the way the model functions right now. EPR motivates brands to make better, longer-lasting products that are more easily repaired and recycled. Have you tried to repair a fast fashion garment? 
it can be hard, especially if it's like made of chiffon or has a crappy plastic zipper. It's not easy to repair these things. EPR makes brands financially responsible for the end of a product's usability. This makes the disposal of that product a financial burden for the brand. And that's a good thing because it, then it's in their best interest to make better stuff that's easier to recycle, that lasts longer, that fits better. Because the burden of dealing with its disposal cuts into that profit margin. And remember, we're talking pennies per unit. They don't want to give up those pennies right now. Suddenly, the model for the industry would shift from selling millions of garments for pennies of profit to selling thousands of garments for dollars of profit. It just changes the entire dynamic. So yes, prices will probably increase, but not as much as you think. And in theory, you would need to buy a lot less new clothing because anything that is still in good condition will either be worn by the original buyer or still be circulating in the secondhand market. It could increase the quality of the secondhand market as a whole. And so really, while things might be slightly more expensive, brand new, there will be more secondhand clothing out there that is a good value, and you'll be buying less clothing in the first place, so you'll probably be saving money. EPR starts with government regulations. Various countries and states are starting to adopt legislation like that right now. It's not perfect, but it's up to us to demand it from our elected representatives, and this is going to be a hard one. We've talked, I don't know if we've talked about it here on the podcast, but I've definitely talked about it on Instagram, how more and more states are fighting for the right to repair things like iPhones and tractors and cars and whatnot because companies have been, and this includes Apple, intentionally making it damn near impossible or really expensive to repair their products in the hopes that you'll just buy a new one instead. So we're starting to see a shift here, at least in the United States, around this, but it's it's going to be a hard process because if you think it's hard to change your ways when it comes to buying and selling clothing, think about how hard it is for all of these corporations, or at least how frightening it is for sure. But we can push for this with our elected representatives. That's something we can really do. But remember, the goal of EPR is to make us need less new stuff. So no matter what, we are also going to be changing our behavior. And I know that that can be scary. I mean, all change is scary. But in this case, the payoff will make that transition so worthwhile. This is a great transition into talking about circularity, another concept that fast fashion is starting to use incorrectly as a means of greenwashing. A while back, a friend of mine who shall remain nameless, but if they're listening to this episode, will immediately know that I am referring to them. This friend of mine received an email from a big fast fashion retailer about a secondhand platform that they're launching. Basically something to compete with Poshmark and Depop, that kind of thing. Very similar premise where it's like peer-to-peer selling and they're just the platform and take a cut. In the email she received, it mentioned how proud this company was that they were making this move into circularity. I'm totally misquoting here, but rest assured, the terms sustainability and circularity were used in a totally incorrect manner, and the body of the email itself definitely seemed to be written by a copywriter who specialized in recognizing buzzwords 
and making them sound meaningful in emails. So none of this was surprising to me. That same week, I saw a write-up on a, on a fashion industry blog about this new secondhand selling platform. The president of this platform was interviewed, and he actually said basically, you know what? The fast fashion brands under our corporate umbrella tend to be very popular on the other secondhand platforms like Poshmark, like Depop. We saw this as an opportunity for us. Like why, basically, why aren't people selling that stuff through us instead? More succinctly, we want to make a few more pennies off of the clothing we've already sold once. And listen, this right here, this could be an amazing opportunity for EPR policy. Like make better clothes in the first place that last longer and can be resold once, twice, maybe even three times over a period of years. I, I love that. That is a circular approach to secondhand selling. Put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that. The other thing, though, about this new platform that struck me as fundamentally uncircular and super greenwashy is that sellers using the platform had the option of either taking their cut of a sale in money, like all the existing platforms, or in the form of store credit with an extra 10% of value for one of the company's fast fashion brands. Honestly, H&M is probably kicking themselves so hard right now for not thinking of this first. And while I get excited about the notion of normalizing secondhand, of getting more and more people into a secondhand first way of life, I do not like a bad faith attempt at getting people to consume more fast fashion. And that's, that's how that feels to me. So this is a great time to explain true circularity and what a circular economy and circular fashion are. Right now, we live in a predominantly linear economy. And that's exactly how it sounds, a straight line that heads in one direction. It's That direction is take, make, consume, waste. When we talk about clothing following this linear trajectory, resources are taken from the earth to say grow cotton and turn it into fabric. That fabric is made into clothing. We buy it. That's the consume part of it. And when we're done with it, it often ends up in the trash. Remember, here in the United States, 85% of our unwanted clothing ends up in the landfill or the incinerator. Furthermore, globally, 60% of new clothes end up in the landfill or incinerator within a year of being made. That, my friends, that's the linear economy right there. And in this version of events, well, that's where we're living right now and what we're seeing play out all around the world, this linear economy. Our clothing is made under exploitive and wasteful conditions. We buy it, we toss it in the trash, or worse, maybe worse, I can't decide. It gets shipped overseas to become someone else's problem. Yeah, I think that's worse because it's also really rude. <laughs> the other thing that's important to call out here is with so much of the stuff we consume being treated as disposable, even though we know it's not disposable, it's not just clothing, but construction materials, electronics, the packaging our stuff comes in. We aren't, we aren't maximizing the value of trees and cotton and water and the oil that's used to make plastic and everything else because we're sort of forgetting the value of it all. That's what makes it easier to pretend it's all disposable. 
A circular economy is one that exchanges the, the typical cycle of make, use, dispose in favor of as much reuse and recycling as possible. The longer materials and resources are in use, the more value is extracted for them. And so in that regard, it actually becomes more profitable along with being more environmentally sustainable because both people and companies are maximizing the value of everything, creating things that last longer and can easily be reused and recycled. When we talk about fashion within a circular economy, it's a more thoughtful approach to creating clothing. From moment one, clothes are designed and developed to last longer, to be passed through families or from peer to peer, and they're designed to be versatile, fit better, fade less, wash up more easily, all the things that fast fashion is not. The whole idea of planned obsolescence gets canceled in a circular economy as retailers no longer utilize trends or intentional low quality as a means of getting you to buy as much stuff as possible as often as possible. Because brands work to remove, and then brands work to remove non-recyclable and polluting materials from their supply chain. They utilize every last bit of material. Because let me tell you, a lot of fabric and thread and trims and buttons and you name it, get wasted by the industry. I and mean, we have barely even talked about that around here. But let me tell you, the number of times we ordered a bunch of buttons for our product, we got the final sample, we didn't like it, and they got trashed. That's repeating itself all over the world every day. Furthermore, in a circular economy, Retailers and brands replace their current take-back scams with repair and reuse programs, like actual repair and reuse programs. And in that scenario, I feel okay with the brand offering their own resale platform for these items. Like if they're going to fix them, let them resell them. It makes sense to me. Circular fashion embodies the five R's, reduce, rewear, recycle, Repair, resell, meaning reduce your consumption by buying less stuff, rewear what you already have, be a proud outfit repeater, recycle when you can, repair as often as possible, and resell or thoughtfully rehome clothing when you can no longer wear it. That includes rehoming via your local buy nothing group or giving it to a friend, having it a, having a yard sale, holding a clothing swap, and so on. And I get so excited about a circular economy because I think about all the jobs that can be created by people repairing things for us. You know, I think about the longevity of the things that we buy and love and we have them for a long time and we pass them on to our children and our grandchildren like we don't we don't do that anymore the problem with fast fashion brands claiming circularity is that they aren't thoughtfully creating products that last a long time that are easy to repair that minimize waste and maximize use no they're making the same old clothes with the same old model that requires us to buy lots of stuff as often as possible. In fact, the quality of these clothes is so poor from the moment they're made 
that there's little hope to get much use out of them via re-wearing, repairing, and reselling. In fact, the quality of these clothes is so poor from the moment they're made that there's little hope to get much use out of them via re-wearing and repairing and reselling. That's not sustainable. That's not circular. And you know what? It's not cute. All right, well, now that I've talked for a really long time, let's get back into my conversation with Liz. So we talked about how, like, holy shit, there's, like, tentacles of clothing in the ocean and clothes on fire and just clothes, 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 clothes. It's it, it's an overwhelming feeling. A, a lot of people are going to say, you know what, uh, Ghana is, like, a gazillion miles away and it's just one country. And anyway, what can I do? So let's talk about what we can do, just average people who want to do the right thing. What can we do to change this situation? Yes. So, I mean, first of all, we always recommend taking a year off of buying anything new for a lot of the reasons that we were just talking about, not in the sense that, you know, you buying nothing new is going to solve this waste crisis or have, you know, a massive material impact, but it's for the psychological detox, right? Because we, again, so many people, we're we're all on this treadmill, we don't know how to get off, or, you know, we have a million you know, people trying to sell us things in our email, on our Instagram, you know, in the things they're watching on TV, it's just, it's everywhere. And it's really hard to combat, um, to resist. And so if you just commit to buying nothing new for a year, that creates this framework for you, you know, to, to detox from all of that messaging, to, you know, try to understand what it is that actually pushes you to buy new things, where does that impulse come from, and then also helps you to form a new relationship with the clothing you already have and to look at your closet in a new way, you know, to start to notice, like, what are the things that you wear over and over again? Why? Why do you actually like that thing? What are the colors that you have? You know, what are the things that you never really wear? Um, To reflect on your choices and to be, you know, to understand what you might want to buy in the future. And we also recommend that, you know, people choose at least five garments to do something new with. So whether that's, you know, learning to make natural dyes and over dyeing something that's stained or learning to mend, even cutting up a t-shirt and using it as, you know, a rag and, you know, exploring what's possible there or weaving with it or, you know, taking a garment to a local tailor and, introducing yourself to to that economy wherever you are and, um, you know, experiencing clothing anew, whether that's, you know, just making it fit you better or completely transforming it and engaging more in the creative process. All of those things are really useful in helping you to look at your clothing in a completely new way. We also recommend you know, there's all these conversations about like closet audits, like people do closet audits, um, you know, and sort their clothing when they are donating clothing. Instead of doing that, we recommend that people take the time to actually look at the tag on their garments that they put on every day and literally document it and track that information over time and see what questions arise for you. You know, you start to notice that like, 
all of your jeans are manufactured in the same country, even though they're made by all different brands. You start to notice the fiber contents of the things that you buy. Start to research, you know, the the wages for the garment workers in the countries that you're typically buying from. And this it just starts to give you a new entry point for your own curiosity and you'll naturally start to notice these patterns and form new questions. And all of that is really helpful. Even something <laughs> something that we've been recommending people do more of because of this conversation around circularity is like choose a garment that you really don't want to wear anymore. Um, maybe it's, you know, tattered, maybe it's stained, whatever, and unpick it. Like I fully encourage people to take apart your clothes, right? Because mm-hmm. taking apart your clothes helps you to understand how they're constructed and it helps you to like appreciate, you know, the shape of a sleeve. And it also helps you to understand how much time and effort it would actually take to deconstruct a garment, which is very important. Again, with this whole conversation and marketing of the circular economy, people are acting just as you said, that it's like some magic machine that you just put stuff in and it like pops out (laughs) as like a new garment, right? Yeah. No, like the circular economy is going to require a lot of labor and I mean, hard manual labor. And it's not necessarily going to be jobs that a lot of us listening to this podcast want. And that's really, really important for people to start thinking of. So, yeah, (laughs) unstitching your garments and paying attention to that is actually really useful. Um, So that's something that I feel like everyone can do. Mm -hmm. Another thing is to um, join movements like the the Pay Up movement. Um, Because for us, when we think about systems level change, we think about policy. There's basically two policies that are focused on or two um, aspects of the industry. One is a living wage for garment workers because you know our disposability culture, it, it makes itself visible through material. It makes itself visible through these tentacles that are on the, you know, on the shore in Accra. But the actual cause of it is not material. You know, our disposability culture is only possible because we treat other people as if they're disposable and we treat resources as if they're disposable. And as long as we continue to do that, we aren't going, it is impossible to tackle the material problem, right? So any brand that is saying that they're working towards circularity, but still not playing garment, paying garment workers a living wage, that's just complete bullshit, right? Oh my God, don't get me started. Yeah. We we have to... But this, I mean, it's long overdue. Like the behavior of these brands throughout the pandemic and just the behavior in general, I mean, it, it should be considered criminal and we have not succeeded until that behavior is considered criminal. Um, and so, yes, living wage for garment workers, um, an easy way to get involved in that is to um, follow Remake and to join the pay-up movement and really, you know, advocate with them. Um, They send out a lot of great information about actions people can take um, pretty much on a weekly basis. And I really encourage everyone to participate in that. The other um, sort of policy side that people can help with is EPR policies. So extended producer responsibility policies are being implemented across the global north. Um, There's currently France is the only country that has an EPR policy for textiles. And what that means basically is that they're collecting a tax 
you know, from companies for the garments that they make. And then that money is supposed to go towards the waste management of the clothing. So it's supposed to go towards collection, sorting, reuse, repair, upcycling, et cetera. Um, but the issue is that in France, for instance, who's had, they've had their policy since 2007. They've collected more clothing, um, but they've still exported most of it. So 40% or more of the clothing that France has collected through this scheme has still been exported to the continent of Africa, but none of the money that is collected for the waste management goes with it. All of the money basically has stayed in France. And we need to ensure that that doesn't happen and that, you know, not only does that need to be changed in France, uh, but also with all the other countries that are looking at these policies, we need to ensure that they include ecological reparations for countries like Ghana that have long, you know, uh, borne the, uh, you know, long carried the burden of the linear economy and really suffered under this um, situation so that they can build their own local circular economies. And also just, you know, making it global in scope, like is the industry is global. We understand that the clothing is going everywhere. So if we're collecting this money and, and, you know, trying to create waste management systems, then that money should be accessible to anywhere where that clothing is ending up. And so the average people listening to this or, you know, anyone can help to advocate for that, find out um, who's discussing these policies in your local area or in your country and push them to make them global in scope and to include ecological reparations. Um, what else can the average person do? In terms of donating clothing, I'm sure that's something that everyone is wondering about after hearing this. Um, you know, we, <laughs> we recommend, you know, that you donate as local as possible, basically. So try mm -hmm. to find an organization in your local community maybe has a career closet. A lot more universities are starting career closets. Um, maybe it's an organization that works on a referral model with people who are experiencing houselessness so that you know that that clothing is actually going to someone in need. Um, and, you know, the last place that we would suggest you, you give your clothing is, again, to like a retailer take back program like H&M because those programs are very extractive. They don't, you know, they have no accountability, not only to communities in Ghana, but to your local community. Like you drop that clothing off and they're not working with people who are experiencing houselessness in your local community, right? Like they're not, they're not doing any of that. No, it's so scammy. And so they're just taking that clothing yeah. and exporting it. Yeah. So it's the last place really you should be putting your clothing unless maybe it's you know your dirty underwear or stuff that really <laughs> shouldn't be resold um so that you know they can deal with that and then the other thing is again pushing for solidarity from resale platforms in the global north i think that resale platforms are doing really important work and i really really hope you know that we see more of them and that they get strength you know they're strengthened um, but we also need to recognize that, you know, communities like Consumanta have been doing this work for a long time. And whereas retail platforms in the global north are getting a lot of press attention and a lot of investment, you know, millions of dollars of investment, 
the people who work in Capananto are going into debt. And that's something we didn't even talk about. But the last thing that people can do is really push for solidarity um, between these resale platforms in the global north and communities like Capananto. I, you know, really think that profit sharing models are, um, would be great, you know, opportunities to create more of a collective effort around reducing the amount of clothing that's going to landfill and to incineration. Um, to do that, we need to redistribute money. We need to redistribute resources. And I also just encourage people to, you know, really think about what you want from the secondhand or resale economy. Because for me, the secondhand clothing economy is a supply chain Mm -hmm. and it is our collective supply chain, right? Like as a consumer within this economy, you are also a producer. You like the role that you play and the kind of stakeholder that you are is different than it is in the linear economy. And so I think we really need to be conscientious of that. And we really need to feel empowered within that to demand more and to really think about what do we want the circular economy to look like for us? You know, like what, what makes sense? Do we want to replicate this, you know, the, the power dynamics and the labor conditions of the linear economy, or do we want to create something completely different? I think most people would want to create something that's completely different. And so, yeah, I would just encourage everyone listening to this to really think through that and, and maybe talk more to your local thrift store or, you know, wherever you shop about implementing um, new practices, you know, getting a little bit more experimental. Again, maybe it's that there's like a free rack, maybe there's, you know, a, a rack for a <laughs> quote unquote professional dress um, that, you know, people can shop for free and have access to free for free, or maybe there's more partnerships with upcyclers in your area. I think there's a lot more that we could be doing to reimagine. I love that. I think that that's great too, because, you know, something that we've been talking about lately is how, you know, ultimately most of the thrift shopping here in the United States is, even if it's technically nonprofit, it's not really about benefiting the greater good, unfortunately. And I, th- you know, I know that there's also a lot of concern about the so-called gentrification of secondhand and thrift shopping in the United States. So why aren't we changing mm-hmm. the way that these, these businesses operate? Why aren't clothes being made more accessible for lower income people while also becoming more, co- a more common source of clothing for people with more means, you know, like exactly. it, it, can, it can be both, but it's going to require us pushing for those changes. Exactly. Exactly. And throughout that process, right? Like, I mean, clearly there is no shortage of clothing. Yes, so there's so it's much. Not like, but the gentrification is happening around the question of quality, which again, should point all of us back to the root problem, which is that fast fashion garments are not made to have many lives. They are not worthy Mm -hmm. of multiple owners. They are not, you know, made to be kept and loved forever. They are made to be replaced. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where our energy should go, right? Is, is changing that and recognizing that until there are enough garments of quality that are durable to recirculate, 
like the circular economy is never going to work in a way um, that benefits everybody, right? It's always going, there's always going to be this divide of people who benefit and people who, who don't and are left to deal with the discards. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's not what any of us want, right? Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, <laughs> I like, it, it sounds like, you know, once again, like as we talked about earlier, you you start to feel like this is an overwhelming problem and I have no buy-in in it, so I should just give up and I'm going to go buy a Keurig while I'm at it and just like <laughs> totally give up, right? But actually, we all we all have so much power and true. we have we have so much ability to make these larger changes. I can't say that enough, but it's going to require getting more and more people on board and being loud about it. Like if you're not super pissed off to realize that H&M is selling your supposedly recycled clothing to maximize the profit on everything they've sold you. If that's not pissing you off, well, like maybe this is the right show for you, but that like makes me really angry. (laughs) Take that anger. Don't direct it inward and be like, God, I'm such an idiot for shopping there. No, fuck that. Go yeah. make some noise, you know, <laughs> like go tell H&M, hey, so it seems like, could you just explain this recycling thing a little bit more? Tell the people around you. I mean, I think I always say, and I, I 100% believe this based on my experience working in the industry, there are only two things that have the power to make fashion change its ways. One is the law. So we really need to be aggressively making noise about this with our elected officials and two, and this is the one that almost frightens them more, is the idea of losing sales. <laughs> like yeah. that is what motivates change in the fashion industry. Even like I, when you were talking earlier, uh, or we were just like talking, you know, about how we're kind of being sold these delusions of greenwashing to just get us to buy more stuff. There's no kind of, we really are. I was thinking mm-hmm. about how even last year in the midst of the fight for racial justice here in the United States, a lot of retailers, and I know this, sat down and had meetings about like, what can we do about this? Not because, not what can we do about this to make the world a more just and equitable place? No, how can no. we make money off of it? Exactly, exactly. And they're like, shit, we're going to lose sales if we don't, you know, stop only using white models. So, okay, we're going to go out and get the lightest skin black models we can find and check that box off. Uh, we're going to do some half-hearted donation on per- on purchases to, you know, yeah some fund. Uh, no one's saying, you know what we're really going to do is we're going to like make 75% of our new hires black. We're going to yeah. get in the community and do these things. We're going to, you know, offer more educational opportunities to people who can't afford it. No, none of that. Instead, it was just like, hey, your purchase this week money. of this fundraiser tea. Yeah. It's, it's so cynical. It yeah. wasn't like, and I'm not saying that everybody on those teams who did that work didn't have the best the best motivations, but I can tell you the only reason they were allowed to even have the bandwidth to have meetings to get the funding to make any of these changes was because the lar- like leadership was looking at it as like, how can this be both a moneymaker and a, a means of preventing us from not making money, basically. Exactly. And exactly. that's what greenwashing is too. If you're not angry yet, you should be. <laughs> Absolutely. Like rewind and listen from the beginning again. <laughs> I mean, okay. yeah, I don't know how to not be angry about it. I, <laughs> you know what? I think that's something I think about a lot because I think especially 
you know, here in the United States in 2021, where toxic positivity is like a way of life, I think that we have been trained, especially if you're a woman, that you are not supposed to be angry, that that's not a good look and that you should let it go and move on and all of these other things. And I am here to say that like, no, being angry angry. is actually a powerful weapon. Yeah, please, please do it. And it's okay. And like, use that to make change. Don't feel angry and upset and then sit down and go on a shopping spree at Zara to like, blow off some steam, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yes, please don't do that. Do, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, so something y- I, we totally forgot to talk about earlier that is really important is to talk about how these sellers, these retailers in, in Ghana are literally going into debt for these bundles of clothing. Like you talked about how they say a prayer before they open it, because I mean, this could be like a sink or swim situation depending on what's yeah. in that bundle. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. So the waste, you know, isn't just a material problem. Again, there's also many social issues and and one of them is debt. And again, these bails are expensive and retailers often are taking out loans to pay for them. They're often taking out loans to pay off the other loans. And because more and more of the clothing is of lower quality and they can't sell it, they're going further into debt. And that's very much a part of what causes all of this waste, right? Because previously, retailers could reinvest more money into the lower quality stuff to rehabilitate it and make it, you know, sell, make it something that's usable, make it something that's attractive to a customer, even if that's just washing it or ironing something, right? But because Mm -hmm. there's so much low quality clothing and they have to work so hard just to make their money back, they don't have any profit to reinvest in those lower quality things, which is part of why you end up just having more waste. And the only way for them to stay afloat is to keep buying a more, another bail. Most of them consider their job a gambling job. So they're literally just, you know, betting on the next bail, hoping that that will be the thing that takes them out of debt. And during um, the pandemic, this got really, really, really bad because A, in the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people thought that the clothing might, you know, carry COVID might be, you know, possible of, of, um, sorry, some other respect. Um, might be, yeah, possible of carrying the disease and um, be contagious. And so a lot of the clothing that ended up there early on in the pandemic had to be burned and people lost all of that money that they, you know, paid for it. And then also less people were shopping, you know, because less people wanted to come to the market. It's very densely populated. There was a lockdown where people couldn't shop. And then retailers also, because there was a lockdown, because less people were shopping, they had to use any savings that they had to pay for basic necessities during that time. And so, again, just the number of people that took out loans skyrocketed. And the amount of debt that people are in is honestly, it's to a level that I I really don't know that a lot of the people that we work with can get out of it. And this became really apparent in December of 2019, there was a fire that destroyed um, around just over 200 um, retailer and tailors it destroyed their stalls and all of their stock. And some people lost, you know, upwards of $5,000 worth of goods. And people were 
I mean, obviously devastated, but I mean, some people physically, they had to go to the hospital because they had heart attacks from the shock because they didn't know how they were going to come back from this. Right. And I mean, there's, yeah, we, we, we raised money and they, and thank you to anyone who's listening who donated to the solidarity fund. Um, we raised money during that time and, um, just finished dispersing it to the people who were impacted. And even throughout doing that, you know, we, we learned that some people are still in hospital. Some people, you know, were so traumatized by the fire that they were meant you know, mentally unstable and their kids had to, you know, take them out of the city and uh, protect them. And, you know, they, they aren't, don't have access to their phones and, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's really, really tragic. And then on top of that, right, again, what's so violent about this whole situation is that most of the brands that most end up in Ghana are the same brands that canceled orders during the pandemic. So you have these brands that are canceling orders, leaving garment workers to starve, literally indebted to garment workers, like stole their wages. And then you have these same brands are ending up in Ghana and the retailers are going into debt to buy bales full of this stuff that like no one was paid barely to make in the first place and then that barely was worn that not like barely anyone wanted and then again like almost half of it is gonna not even be sold and, and become waste and it's just it's it's a violent cycle and the debt crisis is really the root of the issue and what we need to sort of tackle um because as long as you know, the people who work in Consumanto, as long as they're indebted to a system that is exploiting them, they can't come out from underneath that, right? Like they, they don't have agency within that system. And that's why we really need to address it. And, you know, why we would like to see reparations um, and are trying to make a case for reparations, but also why in our work, we're really thinking about how do we build a local circulatory system that addresses the debt crisis first. Um, so that we're accompanying people out of debt and and empowering them um, so that they can really understand some that they're a part of and make decisions about what they would like to see in the future. And then the other, you know, sort of social issue, um, well, one of the other is, is with the CAIA. So again, the CAIA are female headquarters transporting bales from importers to retailers and stop the market. They sometimes transport the waste. And the you know it's it's backbreaking labor um they live in debt slavery they don't make enough barely to cover their basic necessities um if a bale falls on their foot you know they either have to not work and get evicted from where they stay because they live hand to mouth they pay rent daily or weekly as well as paying to use a shower, paying to use toilet paper, paying to use soap, paying to use a towel, and then obviously food and and water on top of that. And so if they can't work for a day, they literally will be thrown out on the street. And so a lot of them, even if they have a broken foot, will still work, like carrying these bills at 120 to 200 pounds on their heads. And it's literally backbreaking work, and sometimes it's fatal. Um, they're killed because their necks break under the weight of the bales 
And also the bales sometimes fall backwards and, and crush their babies um, because they, a lot of them are carrying their babies on their back while they're also carrying this weight on their heads. And again, these women are working while people are shopping. <laughs> you know, there's 30,000 people that work in Consumanto and then there's thousands more that are there every day buying clothes. And these women, again, often have their kids wrapped on their backs, bales on their heads, and they're weaving in and out of traffic while people are shopping and people trying to sell clothes. And, and it's an oh, incredibly horrible job. And we do a lot of work, you know, with the CAIA, um, both direct aid, you know, providing for basic necessities, food, um, shelter, things like that. Um, but then also programs, we have a peer-to-peer um, network program. So, you know, basically helping these young women to be exposed to other jobs that women can do because, you know, a lot of them, again, maybe as young as eight, um, their idea of what is possible for themselves is, is quite limited as you might imagine. So just introducing them to female entrepreneurs in Accra, having them shadow, having them learn about other jobs, and then some of those transition into apprenticeships. And then we also have a program, a storytelling program, teaching photography, and that's very important to us. Um, We don't speak actually very publicly, typically about the work that we do at the CAIA because, again, these are these are girls and women who are in modern day slavery. And mm-hmm. the idea that you could secure consent from someone who is in slavery is ridiculous to me. Like I don't, I don't believe that it's possible. And so for us, the photography program is very important so that they can tell their own stories and they can, you know, <laughs> document things that they want to document and not always be, um, sort of the subject and, and sort of be exploited in that way. Um, and we also are, we just started a chiropractic research and treatment program. So we're working with this incredible doctor in Accra. Her name's Dr. Dordor, and we will have a hundred girls who work as CAIA in Contamanto going through the program. And Essentially, it's about studying the impact of head carrying on their skeletal structure. And, it, you know, I just told you what happens. It's not that we need, it's not that we don't know what happens. But, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, people don't pay attention to anecdotes and, and policies don't get written because of anecdotes. They get written because of research. Mm-hmm. And there's almost mm-hmm. no research on the impacts of head portering like anywhere, um, which is wild because there's more research on the impacts of like us staring at our phones all day (laughs) than there is of head. And this is a very, I mean, this is something that happens all over the world, right? And it's only getting more intense with climate change because, you know, women now are having to travel further to get water, for instance. And that has all sorts of compounding um, issues where, you know, if they're gone from home longer, then they don't have as much time to cook dinner or, you know, they're not with their family as often, which can cause other problems and increases domestic abuse. And, you know, there's just really not very in-depth research on this form of labor. And it's really important to do. Um, but the women were, are also being treated, um, which, you know, so far we've just 
had a trial um and i yeah i'm just i'm very i'm very hopeful about where this might go because ideally this will give us you know the information we need to um, work on policy change in ghana around head quartering and a sort of threshold for weight that they can carry but then also you know we're we're teaching the girls exercises that they can do to better take care of themselves and how to advocate for themselves um, within these situations. It's it's so much, you know, and like I think once again you mentioned like you know there's been tons and tons of research into what happens when we look at our phones or our monitors at, at the right level, and it's because in most of those situations the idea is that there's going to be something that can sell us that will yeah. fix that problem, right? And like you know. Where's it, it? There's no profit in protecting yeah. women, young women, from being in like enslaved and exactly. carrying stuff on their heads. You know, like there, it's not like the stroller industry is going to come out and sponsor <laughs> that with the hope of selling them all strollers for the no. Like that's not going to happen. No, um, and it's. I mean, it's very true. It's depressing to say, but it's very, very true. And again, this is why like redistribution of wealth, you know, everyone talking about the circular economy focuses so much on recirculation of material, but that is not going to be enough to change the situation. Right? Like we really have to upend these power dynamics and we really, really, really need to center the redistribution of wealth um, because otherwise we are not going to come close solving any of these problems um, because yeah and I just I really would anyone who's listening to this who works in the sustainability space like if you are doing something that is you know sexy that you know is something that people want to invest in like please consider like redistributing some of your money and some of you know the funding that you get to organizations such as ours that are you know, doing work that is really not sexy and like really difficult for people to confront and really, you know, isn't going to be something easy for people to profit from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, like sustainability, sustainable, these are the two words that get thrown at us the most in greenwashing campaigns. And it's, it's infuriating me to me because true sustainability is not just thinking about it's the planet. It's thinking about its people and, if yeah. you are using the UN's uh, sustainable development goals to gauge the sustainability of what you're doing, which you should be if you're doing it in good faith, one of the most important goals is ending global poverty. So when yeah. I look at someone, you know, not to pick on H&M again, but like they kind of deserve <laughs> it, uh, H&M, what are you doing? What about what you're selling us or doing with your money or doing as a company are you doing to end global poverty? Because yeah. it seems as if you're just exacerbating it by flooding. Well, I think they would say that's not their job, right? I mean, and that's where, like, it just, it's so, it makes me feel crazy. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's I mean, wild when you said me. that, I started to feel crazy. It's <laughs> wild like, no. to me working in this, you know, that I've, the number of times that I've, I've talked to people from big fashion companies and just told them point blank, like there's too much clothing in the world. Like this is a fact that there is too much clothing in the world. Mm -hmm. And the yeah. way that they are like, they just, they cannot hear it. 
you know, like they have, have convinced themselves again of this delusion and they've like truly convinced themselves that it is impossible to make too much clothing. And I just, it's mind-boggling. And they think that I'm like, they'll be like, you're too idealistic for thinking that we can like reduce the amount of clothing that we're making. I'm like, I'm too idealistic. Like you are the one that is idealistic or like completely untethered from reality. Because like, if you keep making more clothing, like we're not going to be able to survive. I just, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. But like ultimately at the end of the day, it's not even that they're delusional. It's just making a very clear choice to profit, to prioritize profits over people. Because to sit back in 2021, look at the world, know that in Contamanto alone, 15 million garments are coming through there each week. That's just one port. I just want to say that again. That's not even counting all the clothes that are in the landfills too and going to landfills every week. To sit back and know that, be even just tangentially aware of it, and to say, yeah, I think we should make some more clothes. (laughs) It's like... No, it's no, really wild. No. And exactly. I think, yeah. And like, listen, we all need clothes. We all deserve to feel great and feel like we're at our best and, you know, feel confident. But like, that doesn't mean a steady flow of new clothing, unfortunately. No. And uh, that's the part, like, once again, like, retailers know that we are afraid of giving that up. And that is why they, they are do. happy to sell us all of these delusions that everything is going to be okay if we just buy XYZ or rent it or whatever. The reality is like they're all even trying to get in on resale now because they feel threatened by that. And they're still doing it in a crappy way where they're like, well, what we're going to do is get people to resell our clothes and we can take another chunk of the sales of that. That should make you angry too. Yeah, the last people that should be making more money off of the clothing that they already didn't pay the true cost for is the brand, right? Yeah. The only way that I'm okay with brands reselling their clothes and making more money off of it is if they're redistributing all of that money. Yeah, that's totally true. Like if – I swear I read this, but I haven't been able to find proof of it. So maybe it is a dream that I had where (laughs) – Zara was going to start a resale platform called ReZara. Once again, may have been a dream. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I mean, sounds seems right. like something they would do, right? Uh, what a gamble for them to say, no, we're going to resell our clothes. But uh, anyway, if, if ReZara were a real thing and Zara said, actually, like 100% of the profits are going to clean up, you know, Contamanto and the landfills around it or to create uh, globe, like, you know, even to fund actual real research into actual real ways to deal with our waste or, you know, really actually make climate impact, you know, yeah. actually create a real local garment industry in Ghana and all these other countries that have had their entire economy stifled by all of our shit. Then I would be like, okay, fine, go for it. Everybody feel free to go shop at Rezara. But that's not what would happen, <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, that's not why they're going to do it. No. Which it's is not- why, again, to your point and what we were saying before, we need policy change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need to change the incentives. And I also just think we need, again, like I 
I think that a lot of people working within these companies mean well. Like, I don't think that they're I think so too. Yeah. I think they just live in a completely different reality. And I think they, or they're untethered from reality. And I think it's also like, we live, comparison culture is real. You know, that's why we buy so much stuff because of like what we think our neighbors have or like what our best friend has or what we see on Instagram, right? And I think that, you know, the CEO at a fast fashion company is not comparing themselves or is not in competition with a garment worker. Like they're not thinking about what they have in relationship mm-hmm. to a garment worker. They're yeah. thinking about what they have and what they're doing with their money in, in comparison to other CEOs, you know, at other big fashion brands. And it makes it much easier to justify what you're doing. Um, when there's all these like little bubbles and people never step outside of them. Oh, for sure. I mean, this has been a nonstop topic, but like why are billionaires going to space right now when like the amount of money that's used to make that happen is, is so needed here in this world. Um, yeah, I, as a person who worked in this industry for industry for a really long time, like this is not something that we talk about at work. For certain, if you brought it up at work, I feel like you wouldn't have a job for much longer. Uh, (laughs) People working in the industry are actually completely unaware, and it's not intentional. It's just just how it is, of what's really happening. I guarantee if you and I decided we were going to go hang outside like the offices of The Gap, and every person who came out, we'd be like, hey, have you heard about this? Uh, They would be shocked. Yeah. You know, and I, I mean, that- I've gone to H&M and I've talked to people who work there. And again, like most of them think that the clothing is being put in the bin is being recycled into the stuff that they're hanging exactly. back on the rack. Right? Exactly. And that's why, again, but the thing that is so unfair about this whole situation is that like there are just a handful of people who are making all of the decisions. Like I don't want to make a, you know, someone who's working the floor at H&M feel bad. Like no, that's, that's not the no. person that needs to be burdened with this information. But the people at the top are so unreachable. And like, even for press, right? Like that's something that is somewhat frustrating. I mean, I appreciate people covering the story of Contamanto, but it is somewhat frustrating that like, it's only ever one side really that gets told because Contamanto is open, like it's accessible, like I'll take your phone call, you know, like, it's, but the people who are making the decisions, the CEOs, whatever, they can just say no comment. They cannot let you in. Like there's, so it, mm-hmm. the full story never gets told. And so we end up, yeah, it's just like part of why we end up focusing so much on blaming the consumer or expecting the consumer to like solve everything. Um, because we aren't focused on, yeah, who's actually making the decisions and where the change really needs to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're always available for consumers. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I totally agree. To ruin everybody, I mean, I feel like this is like an aughts thing, but people were really hung up on the idea of the Illuminati. And there were a lot of conspiracy <laughs> theories around it. And I, you never hear about the I Illuminati anymore. I kind of anymore. remember, but yeah. yeah. yeah I, I feel say, like that's like, like so like retro conspiracy theory now but (laughs) (laughs) in a weird way the illuminati is real not in how people are picturing it but in that there are just these people as you said such a small group of people who are making 
the decisions that are impacting so many other people. And Mm -hmm. they're completely inaccessible. They're completely separated from real life. And, you know, the reality, I mean, even just the full repercussions of their decisions. And we don't get to go talk to them about it. You know, we and it's really easy for them to make you feel like you don't know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, totally, totally, yeah, ab- absolutely. And so it's 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 a large battle. We all it's an uphill battle. Uh, I think is the phrase I'm looking for here. And the only way we change this is by getting as many people involved as possible in changing it. Like basically, we have to outnumber them in in terms of like how loud we can be, how passionate we are about it, and how much work we can do to get there. And it's true. You know, it's it's it sounds unfair, right? Like that it should be our responsibility. But guess what? It's where we are. <laughs> like maybe <laughs> if this were twenty years it's ago. Our, it's again, it's like it's not our responsibility to buy better or whatever, but it's our responsibility to be speaking about it and to to, to care about it. The powers yeah. that be, yeah, to yeah. do something about it. Because again, like you were talking about funding, right? It's, you know, something that I know we talked about before that's so frustrating is that there is such a small amount of money going towards this work because people still don't see the connection between fashion and climate change. I mean, first of all, there's so little money going towards climate change work in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but then of that, so little going into anything related to fashion, which there are many layers, like why, you know, but it basically means that anyone working in the sustainability space, you get put in this corner where like you, the only people that will fund things are brands. And then that obviously compromises the movement and compromises Mm -hmm. like what is possible. And it's, it's so frustrating. And that's why, I mean, I just think more people becoming aware, more people talking about it, hopefully will, again, sort of elevate this conversation to a point where pe- people everywhere, um, people who say they don't care about fashion, which, you know, everyone cares about it, um, yes. is forced to pay attention to it. Yeah, I agreed. Agreed. Well, do you have any final thoughts for everyone? Or maybe that's where you want to end it, because that was good, too. <laughs> I just would encourage people to you know, get comfortable with the fact that there's too much clothing in the world. Like that's, that's not an opinion. And yeah, I mean, we have to face it. Yeah. I think that is a great, a great thing for us to get comfortable with and accept. And, you know, maybe I, I, you know, there's like the stages of grief, you know, I think we have to go through the stages of grief and get through accept to the, to acceptance with the idea that there's, too many clothes in the world. Exactly. That us buying like expensive, sustainable clothing doesn't undo that. That, exactly. uh, you know, like us renting clothing doesn't change that because those clothes are still being made to be rented when we already have so many clothes. And really the changes are so much bigger than that. And, you know, go through the denial phase, get to acceptance. <laughs> it's true. And that's what, you know, if you commit to buying nothing new for a year, you can go through all those phases and you will. <laughs> but it's very empowering to come out the other side. It really is. I'm I'm in that year right now. And uh, it's in the beginning, it was like painful because I would be bombarded. I, I mean, just you you know how it is. Emails, Instagram yes. ads, pop-up ads on the internet, text messages to like buy, buy, buy these things. So I started, 
you know, unsubscribing, which is a whole, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge project in its own. Um, as a person who's worked in fashion, I've always subscribed to all the mailing lists to see what people were buying into and what they were putting on sale mm-hmm. and how they were marketing stuff, you know, for work. So unsubscribing to all of that, getting rid of all the text messages, unfollowing Instagram accounts, that kind of stuff. And what I'll tell you is it actually makes you, after you've done that, even more sensitive to how much you're being bombarded with this kind it's of true. content that you're totally unaware of. Because when you reduce the noise, the remaining noise is louder. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, oh, I can't believe how much stuff I get in my Apple news feed that is literally like listicles about stuff to buy. Like yep. being presented as news to me. You know, like that's one example. Or the ads that just follow me across the internet <laughs> when I'm trying to do research, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating. And I think it's a good exercise for everyone to see how deep, how deep we're all into it. It is. And you really do notice very quickly, I think. And again, I think it just like drives home the fact that the root of the issue is overconsumption and overproduction, right? And for me, even with like sustainability brands, I remember we were talking about, you know, subscribing just to learn about a brand. And, and one of the brands that I remember I subscribed to a few years ago was Everlane um, mm. to see, like, how they were communicating and how they were talking about transparency and stuff. And I couldn't believe the number of times they were emailing me a week. And I was like, how is this? how could this ever be sustainable if you're telling me to buy something new every few days? You know, and it's just allowing yourself to become more aware of those messages and and question them is really important. Yeah. And it, I mean, honestly, it's, it's fascinating. Like it, it sounds like a chore, but it's really interesting when you start to put all this together and it feels really empowering. It does. And just adds a little layer of wonder. Um, You know, it's important for us to have curiosity and have wonder about our clothes again and stop just thinking of ourselves as consumers. It's very boring. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I just want to say again how grateful I am that Liz spent so much time talking to me. This is such an important story for all of us to hear, myself included. And I'm glad that all of you have been so responsive to hearing it. Next week will be my final installment in this series, although I hope Liz comes back again to tell us more. There's so much more we can talk about. And in next week's episode, I'll be talking to two members of the Aura Foundation team in Ghana, Chloe and Sammy. I can't wait for you to meet them. They're so rad. In the meantime, please, if you haven't already, follow the Aura Foundation on Instagram at the Aura is Present and check out some more information that I'll be sharing in the show notes. I know that this has been a lot for all of you to hear and learn and absorb. It was only last year that I began to discover the impact our overconsumption was having on the planet and its people. I mean, I had inklings of it, but to really learn the hard truths was hard. And as I learned more and more, as I saw the waste colonialism created by millions of brunch dresses and bathing suits that never touched the water and bachelorette party tees, I cried. I have cried. I have cried recently about it. 
I have felt sick and I've been angry. I felt ashamed for all the dumb birthday outfits I bought and hardly wore. Guilty over all those lunchtime Zara shopping sprees because my job was making me feel bad about myself. But feeling guilty or ashamed about what we've done is never the way forward. And that goes for all of us. If you're feeling all kinds of things from listening to Close Horse or even just from listening to the last two episodes, it's okay to feel those things. It's kind of step one, really. Even if you placed a huge order from Shein or Fashion Nova this morning, maybe right before you hit play on this episode, maybe while you were listening to this episode, man, you are wild with the multitasking. Kudos to you. Even if you did that, it doesn't matter because that was then, this is now, and we need to start thinking about what we're going to do next. The way forward isn't feeling guilty or ashamed. It's about receiving the information, processing it, grieving the implications of it all, including grieving the realization that big business has been intentionally misleading you for a really long time. Or at the very least, they've been lying by omission, which my mom always said counted as lying. It's up to you. You determine. Grieve all of that. Grieve the horrific truth about how our clothes are made and how it impacts the planet and its people. Grieve the knowledge that garment workers are paid pennies and work under terrible conditions. Grieve the fact that 85% of our unwanted, barely worn clothes that weren't that great to begin with end up in a landfill. And grieve the impact that all of that fast fashion has had on our planet, its people, and its animals. It's okay to be sad and angry, but what are you going to do with that? That's the big thing. That's the important thing. It's easy to give up, to say, I'm only one person. I can never have an impact on the world. I'm just a tiny drop of water in an ocean. But that's not true. I mean, it's true that you're one person and there are a lot more people out there. But yes, I will concede that operating alone by yourself, making these changes on your own, that wouldn't have much of an impact. But when you're working with other people, a community like ours that's turning into a movement, when we're all working on making these changes together, that has impact. And it's a major impact. Now is the time to make that change. We have a huge opportunity here. Brands are listening, and they they are afraid of what we're doing. I cite the pay-up movement all the time as a moment where tons of people were educated about the real truth of how brands were treating their garment workers by canceling tons of orders and shifting around payment terms in a way that meant workers who already had been living in poverty were now not going to get paid and slip into even worse circumstances. And can I tell you a truth here? This kind of thing was always happening. The number of times in my career I have seen an order canceled because the buyer didn't like that it didn't match the Pantone. We didn't like the buttons. It didn't fit right. Maybe leadership changed our budget and suddenly we couldn't afford it anymore. I mean, this kind of stuff happened every week of my entire career, right? We were always canceling orders. Everyone was canceling orders. And what happened every single time that happened is workers didn't get paid. But finally, 
last year, this dirty, terrible secret of the fashion industry became public knowledge. Word got out, we mobilized, we took action, and you know what? Brands were forced to pay up. Some of them ignored us, and I'm going to tell you right now, those are the ones that I think need to go out of business as soon as possible. But lots of other brands did pay, and those are the brands that we can work with to make impact. The other thing that's really sort of magical about the pay-up movement is we did all of that while, for the most part, being quarantined away from one another. We were all separated physically and yet unified on this action. Imagine what we could do next. We have a major opportunity right now to demand change from brands, from our governments, and from ourselves. And we can do that together by unifying, sharing our best practices, supporting one another, welcoming others into the movement, and educating those around us. We can do this. And I'm excited for us to do it together. Thanks for listening to this episode of Close Horse, researched, written, edited, and hosted by me, Amanda Lee McCarty, with intense emotional support and occasional chair scratching from Brenda. If you want to support my work here, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash podcast. You can send a one-time donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Don't worry, all that info will be in the show notes. If you've enjoyed yourself today, Please leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, this is the most important part, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your neighbor's neighbors, I don't know, whatever, tell your coworkers, whoever you want to tell, just tell them. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. And I will see you all via this podcast next week or on the internet. Bye. (laughs) 